Welcome to Dulles. We're a community of faith that embodies the love of Jesus for the good of our neighbor and renewal of our world. We're so glad you're listening. Okay, so uh, a number of personal stories this morning. And the first is going to go back to when I was 15. I, uh, this is the first time I remember, rather than just going to church and believing what I was hearing, I actually did something to move toward God. I, I took a step, I acted in a way that I felt his voice was calling me toward or calling me to do. And it, it's somewhat of a tragic story. I grew up loving football. I was going to play, uh, I knew at seven or eight years old I was going to play at Notre Dame someday, and then I was going to go to the pros. <laughs> I did. I, I, I was convinced of this before I was 10 years old. Uh, I just grew up in a home where football was a big deal, and it was just in my blood. And um, I, I felt God had gifted me with this talent, and it was just... A love, he'd given me this love and passion. And uh, one night in a JV game, uh, our, our freshman, sophomore game, our quarterback, Corey Adams, uh, threw an interception and made the tackle and broke his neck. And uh, he was paralyzed for a while, for a couple of months, and then slowly made his way back to school. And believe it or not, he played uh, his senior year of baseball on our baseball team. But uh, his paralysis had kind of an emotional, spiritual paralysis effect on me. And if you're not a sports fan or you just kind of have it hard, find it hard to believe that somebody's dream would be something like this, just, just understand this was like my whole world was shattered. And I went into my bedroom one night and had the desk where I did my homework and I sat and I just, I wept knowing that this this life, my whole world, my whole paradigm was football and stadiums and, you know, and it was like I was losing it. I could feel it like leaking out of me. And I, I, I was angry at God. I was trying to figure out, God, what are you doing? Like, I, I just don't have the desire anymore. It was kind of that, you know, in my 15-year-old brain, I was trying to process all of this. And my Bible that I would take to church with me to my youth group was sitting near me, and I remember while I was just in tears, I just reached out and grabbed it. I didn't open it to read anything. I opened it to try to find the center of the Bible, you know, just kind of roughly the, the middle. And I put my face down into it. And my door was locked. You know, I would never have let anybody see me do this. But I recognized it as this is God's story. These are God's words. And God, I, don't, I cannot understand what you're saying to me right now. But I'm not giving up on you, and I believe you're supposed to have my life. It was the first time I ever in my life remember choosing, man, this makes me angry. I feel like you're taking something away from me, you know, how, how, however you would say it. Uh, my version that night was, this feels unfair. It makes no sense. But I'm choosing to give you my future and my life without football. And I, I, I said that with my face down into the Bible understanding that this book is the words and story and plan of God. And it released something in me. There was something about that, that decision that opened me up more to the voice of God, more to understanding him in my life as a teenager, just as, you know, a clueless teenager trying to, you know, figure out how am I going to make money and what am I going to do now without football? I saw God do things in my life in conversations and friendships where I could tell he, he's doing something through my life. He's actually using me with some friends. He's, I feel close to him. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking back to when I was 15, recalling, you know, the effect that it had. And so that leads me to, I just told this story recently, and I'm going to keep this just summary short, the night where on winter break, I was 19, maybe, maybe 20, and friends came over to, to play video games late, and I just kind of snuck out. I didn't tell anybody. I bundled up. I put my ski gear on because it was snowing, and I walked our street, that one-mile circle I lived on, in the snow, trying to figure out my purpose. Like, God, am I going to just, I'm just going to get a job and just, 
retire someday and then die? Is that it? That's what we're all supposed to do? And I had the greatest sense that night of my purpose being the presence of God. And that can sound super churchy or it, I, I just knew it. It was like this knowing, this awareness in me. I exist to be close to God. My purpose was in his closeness. And there was this connection in my brain or my heart that understood I'm aware of this. I feel closer to him. There's a knowledge that I have right now walking in the snow. No one could ever convince me otherwise. It was like God was walking in the snow with me. I mean, I didn't see anything. There was nothing weird other than I just knew God's making it so clear to me. My purpose on earth is his closeness, what he wants to do in my life and around me and in people's lives. And, and oh, by the way, this is the purpose of every person, is the close presence of God. That connection happened, that awareness or understanding happened because I had stepped away from comfortable, fun, just the normal routine, the guys over, video games, there was something about putting, putting that on pause to go find or seek or ask God questions where the dots connected. And if I had stayed playing games that night and then just done a quick prayer before bed, God, I hope you're there, please make... It, it, the, the same connection wouldn't have happened. Does that make sense? Because I had moved, because I actually stepped or walked or made a decision or gave up something and said, God... I want to I make sense out of you. It, it, it's like opening a door to him and allowing him in. He's, he's a gentleman. He's not going to force himself onto our faith. But when we seek him, it opens the door to his voice. And again, not a perfect life, not making perfect decisions. There are mistakes that I regret, certainly. The summation of my life following that point was more of the recognition of God in my life and his closeness and what he wants to do and how he wants to use me. It's like I was opening this portal to the reality of God happening in my life because I was saying, I want to figure you out. I, 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 I want my purpose to be clear and I'm willing for you to define my purpose. Then uh, that brings me to my wisdom teeth being <laughs> taken out. Uh, this is a longer story that I'm not going to tell the long version of the story this morning, but I've decided to tell this. Um, until I told our men's group on Monday night about two months ago, I had only ever told maybe eight or nine people the story. It's the only time in my life where I witnessed something while awake that was not of this world. Hasn't happened since. I've never seen an angel that I was aware of. I've never, but this is the one time in my life where I did see something extra natural or supernatural. I, as a kid, something happened to me as a kid. I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was a TV show or a movie or a friend that had surgery, a friend of the family. I developed this fear as a little kid of having to have surgery, of having to be put to sleep by a doctor. That's specifically what it was. It, just, it was just this deep, deep fear. I can't explain it. Uh, we all have, you have your anxieties too. This was one of mine. I grew up just, and I, I started praying as a kid, God, please don't let me ever have to be put to sleep by a doctor. And then I would just go skipping through life like I'm never, you know, sad. A lot of people have to have various surgeries. and I'm not going to have to because I asked God to prevent that. From, and when the dentist told me that my wisdom teeth had to come out, no joke, I was like, no, no, that's okay. I, I'm going to leave them in. And he was like, well, you can't. And I said, no, I'm, I'm okay with my wisdom teeth. And he said, no, no. And he scheduled it. And I, I, I remember just going home like, I don't understand. I said, can you take the wisdom teeth out and keep me awake? And they were like, no, that's not an option. And it just so like upended me. Like, and so I went into this fear. I was probably 20, maybe 21. And it was like this paralyzing fear. I couldn't talk about it because it was embarrassing. And then the week came, and I, I you know, I, I, I didn't eat much. I wasn't paying attention in school. It was like my whole, everything was just wrapped around the sphere of the surgery coming up on Thursday morning. 
And the night before I got in bed and I was just, my heart was racing and it was, it was like the voice of God. I had already allowed the voice of God to be close to me because of other times of moving or saying yes or seeking God. The voice of God was so clear to me. Just knowing, it was an awareness laying in bed. I'm trying to control something that God does not want me to control. And so I had a decision to make. I'm going to keep controlling it, knowing I'm doing that, or I'm going to let go of this surgery tomorrow morning. This, this, you know, I was asleep. I think I was asleep for like nine minutes or something. You know, it's so crazy. You look back on the silliest things like, why was I so afraid? Or why did I not want to give that book report in front of the class? Or why? And so laying in bed, understanding that, I got out of bed and I knelt not trying to be religious, I knelt because I, I was just choosing to lower myself like in this act of giving control over. And I said, God, I can't understand. You and I had a deal. I had asked you to never let me have to have surgery and be put to sleep. You're breaking your end of the deal, you know, and it's like God never made that deal with me, but I, you know, was trying to hold him to it. I don't understand this, but I'm... I'm not in control of me, you are. It was one of those kinds of prayers. I'm trusting you with this. I don't understand. I could easily have gone through life without having to have teeth that needed to be taken out. I don't understand. You know how I feel about this, but I'm going to trust you. And this is the part that you're probably going to want to know more about, and I just can't spend much time on. The surgery happened. It was super simple. I had three wisdom teeth, not four. They took them out. And when I woke up, sitting in the chair, the nurse is coming in. She actually went to church with me, which was super weird. Um, Jesus was sitting in the corner of the room across from me. And listen, I've heard these kinds of stories, and I've heard people say they saw an angel. or they, And I just, most of the time, I'm pretty skeptical. I think I have healthy skepticism about these stories. I don't have time to give you all the nuance of how this happened. It's the only time it's happened in my life. It hasn't happened since. I'd love for it to happen again. It hasn't in 30 years. But Jesus was sitting in a chair in the corner of the room talking to me. And it, it is the single greatest moment of my life. And he was communicating to me how much he loved me. And he was communicating to me that his... Life makes sense when I'm surrendered to his plan. It was that kind of message. I'm not quoting him here this morning perfectly, but it was that understanding, Brad, let me lead your life, and I'll be able to use you and do great things. And I, I let go of the argument, but why? Why surgery? Why? I still don't understand. I still don't understand why I've had to have two colonoscopies now and uh, other procedures. I mean, I've been put to sleep now, what? Four times, and I say goofy things when I wake up, and Amy makes fun of me, but I don't understand it. I can't explain it, but God's in control of me, and that's all I knew. In that moment, what he was telling me was, let me be in control of your life, and watch how your life will work. Okay, so see this pattern that's emerging? There are times I've tried to take control back from God, or times I've chosen fear, of course, but then the pattern becomes stronger and stronger. I need to let go of control because life really works when he's in control. I don't need to understand what's happening. around. I don't, want, I don't need to understand why my daughter has been treated this way at work. Or I don't need to understand why this is. I need to let God be in control of my life. And that's when life works. I'm defined by his closeness in what he's doing in my life even when I can't understand what I, what I see happening. That's how I came out of that oral surgery. Even when I can't understand what I see happening or make sense of my context right now, I'm defined by his closeness. So with that, we're going to look at a story in Scripture that has everything to do with this. Because this series where we've spent two months or more on the voice of God, hearing the voice of God, experiencing the voice of God in our lives, 
you will not hear the voice of God or you will close off his voice if you aren't understanding the connection between him speaking and you walking. You getting up from the chair and going to the friend. You saying yes, picking up the phone and acting. There is a connection between you saying, okay, I will act because you're speaking and continuing to keep the portal to God's activity and voice and his closeness open. If, if you believe hearing God's voice means coming to church, listening to a message that educates you more about God, and then you go back to real life and nothing changes, you're, you're not going to hear the voice of God. Not because he's punishing you, but because you are closing the door to him. By not acting, by not saying yes, by not saying, God, I don't understand this right now, but you're, you want my trust, so I'm going to trust. I'm going to forgive this person who's wounded me. I'm going to offer my time to this person in need because you are prompting me to do that. I'm not going to just continue to pray, God, take care of this person. Take I'm actually going to act now because you're leading me to. When you say yes, when you move, when you act... You open the door to God's activity and remarkable and presence and voice. Jesus said, the one who builds their house on sand, hear my words. That person hears my words. But their house collapses. Their future isn't on solid rock because they don't put what I say into practice. And Jesus says, but the person who builds on rock, the person whose house and future is unshakable, is the person who also hears what I teach and what I say. But the difference is they actually put my words into practice. This is a consistent message of God in his story. It's ubiquitous all through scripture. When I speak, when you think this might be God. I think I might need to walk across the street and check on the neighbor. I think I need to call this person that I haven't spoken to in far too long. It could involve your resources. It could feel risky. It, it's, it could be getting involved in your church, like actually moving into community. Like it's, 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 it's incalculable. The options and the opportunities that God may be calling you into when you step, when you act, when you say yes. It's as if the presence of God opens up in front of you and you start to see the activity of God, not just on earth, but through you and as a part of your life. And there's just no greater way to live life. It's what we were designed for. It's what we were made for in the Garden of Eden. To walk in the cool of the creative universe that God made for us to be in. In his presence. Walking with him. In relationship. In friendship with God. God using us creatively in his image, in his nature. Okay, so the story begins in Genesis 1. God blessed them and he said to them, this is the first time that God speaks to humans. We talked about this a few weeks ago and he uses this word barak. The word bless, we have often used the word bless or we've said the word bless or God bless you when somebody sneezes. Remember, a few weeks ago we talked about this and very seldom does anybody know what the word bless actually means. Bless means to offer a gift to someone while kneeling. It's this, not just I want to give you something good, something beautiful, but I do this out of respect and God is the one who does this to humans. God, as if kneeling, blesses us and says, go be creatively uh, fruitful. Multiply. In my image, create. In this garden. And, you know, the garden was, I believe the garden was a physical place on earth, but it represented perfect creation of earth before we broke it before we broke creation we were to we were to just continue the creation process having been made in the image of the creator then we wreck everything by taking selfish control 
And in Genesis 12, we already see God's rescue plan unfolding. We looked at this a few weeks ago. The Lord said to Abram, this is the beginning of God, not leaving planet Earth and going to another universe to start over, but to redeem and remake and renew what's been lost, what we took. God's rescue plan has begun. The Lord had said to Abram, the one person so far who's recognized God, like, we can't be God. Idols aren't God. I can't be in control. God, creator, should be in control. Abram had that belief, and so God chooses him because of his faith. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. This is the first mention of the promised land, which, by the way, is symbolic of the ultimate land God would restore humans to walk in again. We ultimately will be back in the Garden of Eden. This is a reference all through Scripture. The last couple pages of Revelation, the end of the Bible, show us once again back in the Garden. Well, Abram is being told of this foreshadow. Go to the land, which in his day would be the land of Canaan. The foreshadow, the symbol would be the promised land. This is Eden language. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. There's the word again, Barak. I will bless you. God, on bended knee, giving us a gift, giving Abraham a gift. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. You will extend my blessing, Abraham. You will then extend a blessing to the whole world, not just your people, the Israelites, but to every nation. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the plan. God's not calling a favorite people where he shows favoritism just to the Israelites. The Israelites were called, the descendants of Abraham, the calling on them was to be this blessing to every nation, showing and displaying the love and reality of God. And so the promise begins to unfold with the birth of Isaac. Abraham and Sarah in their old age have a son. It's remarkable. Isaac will be the first of countless millions that would end up being the Jewish people, out of which, of course, Jesus would eventually come. And that brings us 10 chapters later in the rescue plan. It's full on now. God hasn't left in anger God hasn't gone somewhere else to start over. God is moving toward us to reclaim and renew lost humans, broken humanity. And we come to Genesis chapter 22, and in the countless, I'm going to say hundreds, of Starbucks conversations I've had at coffee and lunches and with people who struggle to have faith, High on the list is the Bible seems violent, and it seems like God is a violent God. That's one thing that holds people back, and I have great conversations with people about that. And very high on the list, maybe a close number two, is Genesis chapter 22 is why I can't read beyond Genesis, and I can't be a person of faith because of the story that we're about to read. The first time somebody at coffee asked me this question years ago, like, how could God have asked Abraham to do this? I remember like, wow, this guy, this, this friend, he's really upside down on this story. And then it happened a second time. Somebody else wanted to talk about this chapter, and then somebody else. And now it's been countless times. And I realize that this story is a problem for many of us. So let's spend a few minutes in this. Ten chapters into the rescue plan... We come to Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. And he said, to, he said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Take your son, Isaac, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I'm going to pause to just remind you as you let this, this call of God, this voice of God, sink in again. A lot of you are familiar with this story. Maybe it's been a little while since you've read it. While you're absorbing this ask of God, uh, two summers ago, I developed at the beach with our family. Amy's parents are here. I was with them. Uh, super weird infection. 
Uh, I'm not going to get into the details. It's a long story. But I ended up in a hospital in South Carolina, and they did an MRI. They had to MRI, like, image me to get a better idea of what this infection was. My white blood count was scary high. And this just happened, like, within two hours. I ran. I ran that morning on the beach. And a number of hours later, I'm just not feeling well. In a super long story short, my white count came down just enough on day three to get me back to Fairfax, where I'm laying in a hospital bed, and the infectious disease team, the special, I, re, I learned that this is like a specialty team here in the D.C. area, six of them walk into my room, and they're like, we, none of us have ever seen this before. We don't know how to get this infection out of you. <laughs> Uh, and this is, you know, that, at that point, I'm like a week, week and a half. I'm in maybe eight or nine days into this whole scary thing. And I hit this low that I had never had before in my life. I mean, I've been depressed at times. I've had anxiety at times in my life. I had never experienced, when they walked out of the door, and the nurse who has to walk me to the bathroom, I couldn't even get to the bathroom by myself. The nurse comes in and turns off the lights and... And I'm weeping in my bed because I can't see my family. I haven't seen my girls because of COVID. The infectious disease specialists tell me they're not sure how to solve this problem. I can't even email the church that I'm leading. I feel like I'm not going to work again. I'm not sure I'm going to live through this infection. I mean, I've just never faced anything like this. And... Of course, I'm concerned and worried, and my family is. Of course, and God doesn't ask us not to be worried about these things. But I reached a place in that hospital bed late that night. So depressing, the room. I had a window back here to my back left. Couldn't even see out the window. And if I turned and looked, it stared out to a brick wall. I mean, it was just everything about this whole thing was just super depressing. And I'm like, God, where are you? Where are you in this? This makes no sense to me, and I'm not sure I'm going to live through this. And I just, again, for the 200th time, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to count it now, I, I, I told God in a new way, God, I thought I'd given you my life. I thought you had all, all control of me, but this is exposing a part of me I'm not sure I've given you. I'm giving you my actual life. I'm not sure I'll live. I mean, I know this sounds dramatic now, but... This was super scary, and specialists were telling me, we're not, we're not sure, we, we're trying to be honest with you. I'm not sure I'll be alive three days from now. I don't know if I'll see my girls again. And I'm, I'm, I'm just weeping, you know, sitting in my hospital bed. And then I said those words, but God, I don't belong to me. I belong to you. I have no understanding of what's happening right now, but I've learned. I've learned the pattern. I don't need to. You ask me to be defined by your presence. So if you will be close to me in this, I know the world will be right. And that, that was my prayer. And I'm telling you, the, the warm blanket of God's presence, that's how I, I, I wrote it down later and I told Amy, it was like a blanket. I couldn't see it. I couldn't see anything. It was like this peace just laid over me that night. It was the first night I slept in like a week and a half. I slept pretty much through the night, had just peace. My world was right all of a sudden. Even though it wasn't, it was. And I don't know how to explain that. I was still very sick. There were no answers. And yet, the world was right because I had given God control and let go. His voice was calling me, Brad, trust me with this. Make my presence the purpose of your life, not what you get to do at work or with the church or with your girl. Yes, those things matter, and you should love your girls, and you want to see them again, but my, my presence in what I do in your life is the purpose of your life. And I accepted that again, and I genuinely said, Jesus, that's, that's what I choose here tonight. And then the next morning, it was as if this guy was just stopping by for coffee real quick. One of the infectious disease doctors just comes in and says, hey, uh, we had a whiteboard after we saw you last night. We think we know how to solve this. We're going to try something. And what they tried the next day worked. 
the antibiotic, they were able to inject the antibiotic more directly into the infection. And, and it, it, he was like, have a nice day. You know, he just rushed off to his next patient. And the piece that, the, I'm, not, I'm not saying that you choose the presence of God and every problem in your life is just solved. What I'm saying is that God's presence in your problems dissolves them because your real purpose is his presence. And so back to the story where Abraham is facing his crisis. I want you to go and take the promise of the future out of which a nation will be born from Isaac. The world and every nation will be blessed through this promise of your son that I've given you. I want you to take him and I want you to offer him as a burnt offering. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. So he's moving. He's actually, I would expect, reading this the first time, Abraham gets up and they go the other way. He like goes to hide his son or he takes his son to the in-laws or he's, he's trying to like, no, he's moving towards Moriah. He's loading up, he takes two of his servants, and he takes his son Isaac. When he had enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. On the third day, so much symbolism in this story. 1,700 years before Jesus. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we, it's interesting, he says, we will come back to you. This is like split personality kind of stuff. But there's nothing wrong with Abraham's mental health here. Abraham understands God well enough to know this is the promise of the future. God said it in our old age and our son was born. And out of Isaac will come this nation. And I believe God's promise to be true. And at the same time, God's asking me to sacrifice him. And so Abraham is preparing the altar. He has collected the wood. They've traveled to the place. He's brought his son Isaac with him. Now he and Isaac are moving towards the altar, and he says to the servants, I'm going over here to obey God, but we, the future promise, we will come back to you. And if you're like, what? This is confusing. It is confusing. Because Abraham doesn't understand what God's doing, but he trusts God enough, and his life is in the control of God's hands enough to know both things must be true. God is working a promise for the world through my son, and he's also asked me to sacrifice him. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. Again, this is all intentional Preparing us, generations. The wood placed on the sun. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? That's a good question, Isaac. I'd be asking the same thing. Dad, I'm confused. Uh, Usually we have a lamb or there's a ram with, like, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. One moment, Abraham's saying, we're doing this. The next moment, God will figure it out. We'll be back. My son and I will be back. It's, it's, he believes both, even when it doesn't make sense. When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar. Now, when I was younger and read this story, I would read it as if God's sort of binding Isaac up, but he's, he's looking like, this can't be real. This isn't really happening, right? Okay, God, show up. We know God shows up here, but this is a sincere offering of his son. He's going through with it. He lays his son on the altar, on top of the wood. When he reached out his hand, then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. I'm going to interrupt the story to tell my fifth story. I, I told 
our all-call team here this morning. I'm going to tell five personal stories this morning. They're like, what? God has placed such a deep desire in me to see his church be the most exciting idea on earth to people. I believe it is. I believe the church is always supposed to be the most exciting idea on earth. The movement of God's people in perfect, different backgrounds, unite it together where our common unity is what Jesus has done in each of us. That the world is starving and begging for that kind of movement. I'm just convinced of it. And that we would compel people, we would influence neighbors, we would show the love of Jesus together. Jesus himself prayed before his death that we would be so united, his church, his followers would be so united, the world would see. Others would see and know this is real. God sent Jesus. I see him in these people in the church. And yet, <clears throat> the last couple of years, God has been asking me to surrender the dream of a growing church, the exciting environment of more people coming in on Sundays, building relationships, to surrender that dream as my primary dream for what instead is more important to God. That I see Jesus do amazing, astonishing things. And listen, I, I, I wish I had more time this morning. I debated whether to actually tell the story today, but um, I hope I'm, I'm clear here in the next couple sentences because we need to move on. Our church influencing others is a part of God's design for his church. Our church showing the love of Jesus and the reality of Jesus. That is supposed to be an inherent desire, not just in your pastor, but in all of us. That is a pure and good desire. And yet, God has been making it clear to me in the last couple of years, and I write the, these things down, more than seeing the church grow, more than the excitement of meeting new people, I want you, Brad, to crave and desire me. Amazing you and doing astonishing things. And there's something happening in this, and again, I wish I had more time to explain this, where God, I believe, is protecting my heart, where the excitement of people coming in and hearts changing and, and lives being awakened to the reality of God, that that phenomenon doesn't become my God, if that makes sense. But my God is always the actual one who changes hearts. So I'm at the level now where God is asking me to lay down the dream of a church being exciting and this explosive. It, it, that's God's idea. We read it in the New Testament. And yet he's asking me to lay that down in place of him and only him being what amazes me. And because of choosing that, I'm meeting new people. I've been doing this through the holidays. I was like, God, I'm laying down this dream. That I know you've given me. It's your dream, but I, I'm laying it down so that you and only you are what fuel me and excite me and are my purpose. And as I pray that, I meet somebody else who walks in our doors. And somebody else signs up to be on the team. And somebody else sends an email describing how in their short time here at our church, they've been so encouraged and they see God's reality. It's no accident, the connection between saying, God, even the great and the good that you've given me, my family, my girls, my friendships, I don't want any of that to precede you and your greatness. It's like that opens the door to greatness. That opens the portal to the remarkable. I just see, I, I, I continue to see it happen. Abraham has taken the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven. Abraham, Abraham. And by the way, this language and Bible scholars can do a much better job of explaining this, especially quickly. There's a lot of evidence in the Old Testament that this is Jesus. The angel of the Lord is actually the voice of Jesus. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, even your only son. Abraham looked up 
And there in the thicket he saw a ram caught in its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. There's two remarkable things happening here. The one is that Abraham's faith, he is the father of our faith, the first to truly believe after our mess that we created, the brokenness of planet Earth because we chose selfishly, we as humans. Abraham is the first to say this world only works when God, creator God, is God of everything. And he became the father of our faith. His faith in God is so deep that even the precious promise of God in his life he was willing to lay down, to trust the voice of God. And then we have the, the second remarkable facet of the story, where after the fourth or fifth or sixth time of talking to someone who is like, Brad, I can never follow a God who would ask this. This is so jacked up. I get 22 chapters into the Bible, and God asks this man to give up his son? What kind of God does that? And I, I don't blame the person sitting across from me at coffee asking this. I get it. It's morbid. It's morbid, Brad. It clicked with me. I think the fifth or sixth time, it was like God's voice, the, God's spirit in me, just what came out of my mouth. I hadn't read this in a theology book. I had always been perplexed by this too. I had struggled with this text, the story, kind of read over it many times. It was like the spirit of God just suddenly spoke. It was this knowledge that I had instantly I created this morbid so that you would understand, all humans would understand, the love of me, your father, giving up my only son. God isn't messing with us. He's not trying to traumatize us. He's trying to build empathy in us where we, in our morbidity, our, our, our anger, like who would do this? A dad giving up his son, we would suddenly step into worship and appreciation that, wow, he was preparing us way back in the beginning of his rescue plan for what he would do, what he would give up. In his ultimate act of rescue, he would take our selfish choosing. He would take our anxieties and fears. He would take our our ugliness and our defensiveness. He would take every part of his character, uh, of our character that is not his character. He would take everything off of us and onto the cross so that we could be free. We could be blameless. We could have no guilt. When that clicked, not only did the person across the table from me say, Holy moly, that makes sense. I'm sitting there saying, holy moly, it does make sense. Wow. Wow. You spend time in God's words long enough, I'm telling you the spirit of God makes sense. Something that had been confusing for so long. The beauty, suddenly this is a beautiful story. God's preparing us to understand and better appreciate what he would do for us in sending his son, Jesus. I'm going to invite our band to come. We're going to prepare to move, to step toward the table of Jesus this morning. I don't know where you are in your faith. I'm just telling you right now, your faith does not have to be perfect or all figured out. Please let that lie or that... Um, religious sense of obligation, please just lay it aside. The thing that you did that God hasn't been happy with for years, please trust it in the hands of Jesus. Whatever makes you feel like you're not worthy to walk in the voice and presence of God, to go to work with the confidence that God is actually using you at work in your life, Stop pushing the cross and what he did on the cross for you away. As if somehow you've got to figure out something in your life or you've got to make something right. Jesus came to make us right when we cannot make right our brokenness. Some of us want to be worthy of the cross. Some of us spend months or years 
trying to get something of our past or something in our character straightened out so that then we can be worthy of the cross. And that's just so backwards. You're never going to get there. None of us will ever. Jesus came and went to the cross with our brokenness and ugly and shame because we cannot solve the problem of the human condition, the human heart, on our own. We can't do it. So our band's going to lead us in this final song. And, you know, in the last couple of weeks, we've been doing this, this movement to the front to sing the final song together. As, as a, for some of us, that's no big deal. For others, it's sort of uncomfortable. Like, wait, what? I'm not staying in my seat. And now this morning, I'm going to invite you here in just a moment, again, to the front of the room where the broken bread and the cup of juice await, which symbolize... God's deep love for you so much that he was willing to come into our world, our selfishness, our slavery, our poverty, our racism, our hate, our political division, the son not speaking to the father or mother for years, into that kind of world, but so much so that he would take onto himself, onto the cross, everything in you that isn't the character of God. And so when we eat the bread and when we drink the wine, the juice, we're taking into ourselves, we're, we're joining ourselves, we're marrying ourselves to what Jesus has done for us on the cross. We are giving our lives, we're giving control, full control of our lives to the one who took our sin and brokenness. And so it's a simple invitation. Don't do this because other people in the room are doing it. Don't do it because it's church and this is the religious thing to do. Now we line up and we, if you come to the table, come to the table because you are choosing to allow Jesus full control of your life. The one who took all of your brokenness to the cross. And with that, you are invited to the precious table of Jesus, if you'll take the bread and the cup back to your seat and just hold them, I'll come back in a moment and I'll lead us in the eating and drinking all together uh, in community with Jesus being our common unity. You're invited to the table. It's so counterintuitive. We grew up wanting God to do good in our lives. We want God to answer our prayers. We want God to give us that peace we've been searching for. We want God to give us the friends we've been searching for. And the beginning of the remarkable presence of God in our lives is us giving all of those things over to Him, to His control, to His time, to His plan, His method of working in your life. And when you do, you actually see the reality of Jesus around you. You're no longer just attending church or listening to messages. You're actually a part of the activity of God. It, it, it's just the most amazing thing. And it all begins here at the table of Jesus. Where he says, will you be part of me? Will you be part of my movement, my sacrificing myself, my being willing to give up what's mine for the sake of others? This is the way of my kingdom. And the beginning of saying yes to Jesus is understanding that something had to be broken, something innocent had to be broken in God's justice system. There had to be payment for our ugly, for us, me, trying to be God. And in God's infinite love, along with his wisdom, he loves us so much, he decided to become that payment, that punishment. And so when we eat this broken bread, we are acknowledging that Jesus' body was broken. 
you and me. And we are taking into ourselves. We are joining. We are connecting our definition of life to the one who would walk out of the tomb three days later, having power even over death. So Jesus, we eat this piece of bread, understanding that life is only found in you and what you've done for us. Let's eat together. When we learn that it's actually the Father in heaven, our creator God, who would give up his son, he would provide the ultimate lamp seems so weird in our culture but a lamb as morbid as it is would lose its life to a knife and the blood would be applied in various ways over the family and the home where something innocent innocent life was taken for the sins the brokenness the anti-god in those people in that home and when Jesus went to the cross he became the ultimate lamb for all time so when we drink this blood the, this the symbol of his blood we're worshiping God understanding you have once and for all taken away any guilt any mistakes past present and even future even our future selfish choosing He's taken away. Jesus, we surrender control of our lives to you, and we, we stand in, in humble worship today as we drink this cup, understanding that you are the one who defines us. You are the one who came to redefine us as people alive, even out of death, even out of ugly. We're amazed by you, Jesus. Let's drink together. Jesus, as we continue to worship, we say thank you. We open the door to your activity and remarkable and good in our lives. We want to be part of what you're doing in this world. It all begins with total surrendered control to you. We love serving you, God. Let's worship. You.